Welcome to Quality Blether, the Scottish testing group podcast where you don't have to be Scottish or a tester to have quality conversations about quality. I'm your host, Brian Jones, and my guest today is David Crow, an up-and-coming voice in the field of agility and quality. So get ready for a roller coaster conversation about mushrooms, philosophy, quality, agility, and more. So, hello, David. Good evening, Brian. Is it evening? Good afternoon. Hello, Brian. Good afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's been quite a while since we sat down and had a chat that first time in the pub. Yes, I recall it well. We basically rabbited on for quite a long time about all sorts of topics. And I thought it would be a good idea to sit down and do it again, even if it is virtually. Yes. So for a kickoff, um, how about you give a little background to yourself? So I think you're the best person to explain who and who you are and what you do. Well, when I work it out, I'll be in a much better position to answer that question. But um, I, my my role uh, at the moment is split between being an agile coach slash scrum master for a, a major insurance company, and the rest of my time I'm working and studying at Canterbury Christchurch University, where I um, teach in the business school. And my PhD topic is in uh, narratives in organisational agility, um, which I, I imagine for some reason that we will circle back to later. Um, my background is I went to an interesting school, which is a story for another day, but came out with pretty poor uh, uh, secondary education, um, didn't go to university, sort of struggled for a few years in 2000 found out that i had a genetic immune condition which means i don't produce antibodies um uh, a bit later than that realized that i was autistic and along the way you know have dealt with all of the traumas that uh life brings you including coming out to a family which perhaps aren't the most gay friendly um there's a lot of trauma that I have just glossed over there, but you know, just project on it and you can work out what's happened there. So uh, yeah, I have a, a background that I think informs what I do and how I approach people as an agilist and as a teacher. Um, and I do sort of see what I do as an agilist as being an educator. So, you know, I think the two are quite close related. Oh, How's uh, that succinct? <laughs> that, that is very succinct, very impressed. Um, I think we'll probably circle back on uh, some of the things you mentioned in there, maybe on, on another time. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you mentioned the agilist side of things. You, you've become quite well known within the uh, Agile Special Interest Group, having presented several times, and you're now known to my colleagues as being the Mushroom Man. I uh, I attended a training session in Bristol earlier this year, and I walked in to the training session, and somebody walked over and said, "You're the Mushroom Man." And this was quite an alarming moment because I didn't know the person I was talking to, and they obviously knew me. Now I've been a trainer for years, 
So I used to train um, safeguarding and first aid for a, a well-known organization. And so I'm kind of used to lots of people in an organization knowing who I am, but me not having a clue who they are because they were one of, say, 20 people in a classroom. But this was quite alarming. It was it was more than just, oh, you're that teacher. It was, oh, no, you're the mushroom man. And so there was something about that which was very nice. It obviously uh, pressed buttons for people in a way that I wasn't really expecting. I, I was sort of expecting I will do a talk which is quite philosophically out there but make it solidly about what agility is and how people think about agility. Uh, so obviously that talk was Be More Mushroom, which I gave in February 2023. Uh, I guess I should pimp that. It's on YouTube. Go type Be More Mushroom. Um, I found out that if you are in work, you might not be able to access that video because apparently it's flagged as mature content. So, uh, <laughs> which has made it really challenging to share at work uh, where, where I'm trying to, like, oh, yeah, here's an introduction to some of the ideas. Oh, you can't watch that. It's too grown up. Um, so, yeah, this unexpectedly mature, uh, you've seen this, so I, I know that you're as confused by this as I am, by the way. Um, I can this, guess what it is, but <laughs> it's only yeah, guessing. I, I mean, I can sort of guess, but I'm I'm still very confused. So, uh, yeah, so do be careful. It does have very mature themes, such as the difference between mushrooms and trees. Um, and it really is taking that as a metaphor for how we think about organisations and how we work in teams. That was the aim of the talk. But lots of people have contacted me and spoken about it and said how it's influenced the way they're thinking. And that's been quite nice um, and wasn't really expected. Um, I think it's because I'm doing a PhD, which is where I got all these ideas from. It could be quite lonely out on the edge of knowledge. And I, I, I don't want to overstate what that is or anything, but you know, it's, I have, I have read stuff and put it together in a way other people haven't. And I'm the only person out on that plateau. <laughs> uh, my supervisor sort of follows up afterwards and reads it and goes, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But I'm the person who's sort of putting this together. And so when something like that resonates with other people, that's actually pretty good for your self-confidence. And it's pretty good for the knowledge that you're onto something that resonates with other people. Mm -hmm. um definitely the mushroom thing has been weird but but sort of really interesting and sort of affirming as well mm -hmm. um I, I suppose we might as well go down that rabbit hole whilst we're there um when i was think, listening to it what it uh what it, think it's a mushroom <laughs> <laughs> a mushroom hole yeah um and the thing that resonated with me was uh robert persig's book uh leela where he talks about mm -hmm. static and dynamic quality mm -hmm. and that had the same sort of feel about it the mushrooms being dynamic the trees being static and you're having that stability and i thought that's interesting that that fits together nicely because i've always been a, a fan of persig anyway zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance number one book for me 
very famous book. So is that the sort of terms you were thinking on it or was it more expansive than that? I mean, certainly there are similarities there, right? Um, Static and dynamic are two of the concepts that I was sort of picking at. But it's also about how that then connects and links and moves. So, as you'll know if you watch the video, uh, there were two pretty influential philosophers who were hugely active in the 1970s, 1980s, called uh, Gilles Deleuze and uh, uh, Felix Guattari. Uh, uh, Gilles Deleuze was a professional philosopher in the sense that he spent a lot of time doing philosophy and writing philosophy. Uh, Felix Guattari was less of a philosopher. He actually trained as a um, psychotherapist uh, under Lacan, who was a great student of Freud's, for for those of you who don't follow therapy news on a regular basis. Um, And he was running an institution in France that sort of grasped what today we would probably call the anti-psychiatry movement. Um, And so he was running a therapeutic institution where the uh, patients, and I put that in inverted commas, of the institution had democratic control of the way it was run and how they supported their people. He was very, very active in French politics in the 1960s. And for those of you who remember your French history of the 1960s, a fairly big uprising of students towards the end of that period. Uh, And he was actively involved in sort of this revolutionary movement uh, in France at that time. So you've effectively got this theorist who is taking well-known philosophers and reframing them, who meets up with this psych well, psychotherapist, I don't really want to call him a psychologist particularly, uh, the psychologist activist, and the two of them work together. And this brings politics to the philosophy of uh, Deleuze, and it brings philosophy to the politics of Guattari. And this is a really important dynamic, which turns into two of the most mind-bending and sort of amazing at the same time books um the first of which i have completely forgotten the name of but the second of which was called a thousand plateaus um and a thousand plateaus is written like a rhizome so what's a rhizome this is where we come to mushrooms of course Uh, a rhizome is a type of root system which travels horizontally under the ground And in so doing, it connects with everything. So we know that these rhizomal systems uh, can be absolutely massive. Uh, There's an absolutely massive one in Utah, um, which is probably hundreds of years old, if not thousands of years old. You know about rhizomes from ginger or even the grass in your lawn. Okay, so these are systems which are very effective at sort of seeking out spaces and growing up. But the thing about a rhizome is, although it's a root, it can turn itself into 
grass. So, you know, I can put up a sprout and do some photosynthesis. Or at times it can um, put up trees, uh, which is what it does in Utah, which is a massive forest of uh, trees, which are all from the same root system. So they're all genetically identical. And this becomes the core metaphor for their political philosophy, which is that things are connected. Now, this is arising at more or less the same time that you have physicists starting to talk about complexity theory uh, uh, in the real world. So, in fact, physicists are talking about the connections between things as well. And these philosophers are drawing on that and putting these things together and saying, actually, you know, this is true about humans, society and everything else as well. These things are all connected. And it's only by understanding the connections and being sensitive to those connections and creating the right connections that you can change things. And that is as true in organisations as it is for entire nations so that's really where i i'm sure there are philosophers of uh deleuze and guattari who would wildly disagree with what i've just said of course they'll say that's far too simplistic i'm fine with that that's the core of what's going on and so paying attention to connections paying attention to what is different and what is repeating paying attention to those patterns in context is what allows us to understand the political patterns and it's what allows us to influence change so essentially by being more mushroom we can be more dynamic in changing the culture that we're living in absolutely whether that's work culture or whether that's another form of culture yeah so um at the risk of being overly political um if you want to make a change in society the best way to make that change is to go out there and make the change yourself not campaign for the change not like try to get power by being an mp that's very much a tree way of thinking it's very arboreal you know it's rigid and it's got a particular way of operating if you want to change the lives of people who are homeless go out there and provide them with beds if you want people to not be hungry tonight go out there and feed them etc if you want to make a change in society you effectively have to undermine their expectations you know be that little rhizome that wiggles around and does the unexpected don't do it with expectations of power that doesn't work and also it makes you look like a douchebag right um but do it because it's the change that you want to see be the change that you want to see yeah and if you're modeling the behavior then people end up following you yeah so taking a step back from that yeah that's essentially how you change the culture so if you want to change it to a more quality-based culture a more agile-based culture or a more moral culture whatever the change is that you want that's the the process you have to go through basically being more mushroom so yeah. taking a step back from that one What's your definition of agility and your definition <laughs> of quality that you would want to change towards? <laughs> like, I struggle with defining agility like you would not believe. Okay. Um, 
So this is very much my academic hat on here. Like, if I was just being an agilist, I would say, oh, you know, it's like an agile practitioner. I'd probably say something like, oh, if you look at the agile manifesto, like that's a really good set of values. And by the way, I still hold it. It's a good set of values. Nothing. I mean, I might tweak them a little bit because it's 20 years on, but, you know, still a good set of values. Still a good stuff. But actually, what agility is, is far more complicated than that because it comes from a rich history of people thinking about how to organise work in different ways. You know, we can start back at Taylor. I'm sure your listeners will hear the word Taylor and suck their teeth. <laughs> Taylorism, why is he bringing that up? If you want something done in a highly efficient and deeply repeatable way, Taylorism is your way forward, right? McDonald's is basically Tayloristic. If you want a burger made so that it looks the same every single time, you have a set of steps on a laminated card in front of you and you follow those steps every time, you know. You wouldn't Uh, have cars, for instance, if it wasn't for that approach. Absolutely, yeah. You've got to be able to do repeatable instance. So um, Taylor is really, at this point, he's focusing on cost, he's focusing on quality, and he's focusing on speed. Okay, those are the things that he focuses on. Then there's some shenanigans that happen with statisticians who end up in Japan in the 1950s after having their economy ruined uh, as a result of the World War. And they teach the Japanese about these ideas that are sort of brewed in America and they show them how to apply them. So we get uh, out of that, we get what is famously called Lean or the Toyota production system or like in another jacket, total quality management. You know, that sort of is the 1960s through the 90s, I would argue, where you've got this idea of dependability is starting to be built in. So actually, it's not just that you've got quality built in. Where I'm, um, a person who I admire said that uh, the idea of quality is um, doing something repeatedly to a standard which is important to somebody who is important to the organisation. Some variation on that theme. So, you know, your customer, but it might actually be the commissioner who thinks it's important rather than the actual customer themselves because it's the commissioner who's got control of the purse strings. But whoever it is who is important to the context, that's what we're talking about in terms of quality. Dependability is can we deliver it when we expect to deliver it? So this is sort of some of the ideas in Six Sigma, which sits alongside Lean, about not just purely quality, but also when we're saying what the flow rate is, is that flow rate actually predictable over a solid period of time? And that flow rate being affected by error rate. Of course, the two have a very close relationship. Agility starts arising, I mean... If you listen to Tom Gill, he will tell you he started experimenting in the 1960s. He really started talking about that and doing stuff in the 70s. I think he put the first thing in writing in 1981. And that's really where we get agility from. He referred to it as Evo. But this is, in the software context, cyclic building 
of um, work. So you build a slice, test it, uh, get approval from your customers. This is where the customers are engaging again with your quality and you're getting feedback. And then you build the next slice. So you've got iterative working happening. Tom's experimenting with that in the 1970s and 80s. Um, at the same time, the Americans are watching the Japanese and going, we have created a monster. <laughs> so in fairness, they're looking at the EU, which was just coming into being at the time, and going, oh, they're a monster as well. Germany are going to overtake us. Um, manufacturing in America pretty much stalled in the 1940s and 50s because they were the best at everything. So why did they need to do better? Whereas the rest of the world were going, no, we can do better than that. And so then you start to get America panicking in the the 80s and going, there were TV series about this, by the way, about how Japan was going to overtake the American uh, manufacturing economy uh, because they just couldn't afford to do it as well. So when you look at that, what you get out of that is a report which was published in 1991 on agile manufacturing, which is the idea that you also build flexibility into your systems. So this is the first time flexibility starts being really talked about, as in you have one production line, but it can change the product effectively on the fly or with very, very really turnaround time so of course we are familiar that you can retool a production line but retooling typically takes a non-trivial amount of time these guys are going no we need to be able to swap over much much faster than that it needs to be close to zero downtime to switch out your tooling and produce a new thing 1991 they published that as agile manufacturing um the people who write that book go on and publish books about agility in the 1990s Fast forward to 2001, a bunch of men get together in Utah, uh, somewhat famously, to go skiing and talk about lightweight methodologies together. Uh, uh, just as an aside, I hate the word methodology. They're not doing methodologies. They're not consistent enough and systematic enough. <laughs> um, I'm happy with lightweight frameworks, so let's call them that. Yeah. I feel like I'm... I feel like I'm becoming some of the people I most respect in academia who get really pedantic about the use of language. <laughs> well, I can't imagine why that is. <laughs> no, I can't imagine why. Um, so they're talking about lightweight frameworks in 2001. Of course, famously, what comes out of that is the Agile Manifesto. And why is it called the Agile Manifesto? Well, um, we don't have an answer to that in the sense that it's probably a bit lost in the mists of time. But certainly one version that I read had one of them saying, I had read a book on agility, as in agile manufacturing, and I really liked the word, and it was better than calling it pretty much anything else. So that's really where we get the concept of agility from. Of course, software agility has sort of been the theme for the last 20 years in many ways. But actually in the background, we're seeing the development of HR agility. We're seeing the development of uh, operational agility. We're seeing a whole bunch of things coming along. So if I'm asked to define what agility is, which was, I think, the original question. Yes. It is 
the incorporation of a fifth performance measurement into the way people think about operations with your primary performance measurement almost invariably being cost. Speed is probably the next one. Quality is probably the third one. Then we start to get dependability come in and really Kanban is about dependability. Mm -hmm. And then flexibility comes in later. And that, for me, it's that fifth one, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about agility. It's the ability for the organisation to change direction in a way which is consistent with cost, quality, speed and dependability. Um, now, some of those systems drop dependability. and Kanban is very strong on dependability. I don't think... Kanban as a framework, and please don't flame me over this. I don't think Kanban a framework is super heavy on flexibility per se, but there are certainly systems which allow you to be very flexible in responding to changing environments. I'm not saying Kanban inhibits it. I just don't think it stresses it, uh, to be clear. Um, if we carry that on, there's a sixth performance metric, which is sustainability, which is becoming increasingly increasingly performant to, uh, to all organizations if you don't have sustainable products and processes actually there's real questions about whether you're going to survive the next 50 years and frankly for that matter whether humanity will survive the next 50 years that is i think what we're going to see come next so you know i sort of to extend beyond the question you asked what is agility i think it's actually having five performance metrics that are important but I think we are going to start seeing a real shift towards incorporating uh, sustainability into our standard operating models. There's just out of interest, there's uh, a move to include sustainability as part of ISO 25010. I didn't know that, but I'm going to make a note of it because that will probably come in useful for something. <laughs> So the going back to the dependability, in yeah. my head, that's sort of a characteristic of quality. Yeah, absolutely. It, in the sense that, yeah, so quality is very much about pleasing the right people with your product. Uh, and I'm willing to concede that that is a very simple definition of a complex topic, but, you know, that's what it's about. Dependability is also about can we hit our estimates? And so within those measures, absolutely, there are interactions. And all of these ultimately have an impact on cost and speed. Right. Yep. If we're doing quality well, that's probably having some impact on speed. So, for example, modern production lines, um, when a car moves from station a to station b station b checks the work that station a has done straight away to ensure that quality things are there yeah have they put all the right nuts on you know is there a wheel where we expect a wheel to be is it the right color whatever those things are now that obviously takes a non-zero amount of time to do and therefore has an impact on speed which has an impact on cost the trick is whether you can amortize those costs over a period of time. So if you don't do that, is the consequence of not checking it then far, far, far greater at the end of the line 
when you've sold it to a customer and the wheel falls off halfway down the motorway. It's that classic curve, isn't it? The, the exponential curve upwards of cost for Absolutely. defect fix against time. Yeah. And the same is true with the other things, like dependability. Okay. How can we be confident that what we're going to deliver is going to be delivered in the sort of timeframes we're talking about? Okay. Now, Scrum approaches that by time boxing the work. Um, I think that requires a level of maturity that not all teams have. And that is the ability to look at work and say, is this the right size for us to do? And that, for me, is the big fundamental difference between knowledge work. And there's more than one, but the big fundamental is there is so much variation in knowledge work compared to screwing wheels on. So then when we're looking at it, are we able to articulate its estimate, how big the piece of work is, how complex it is, all of the other ways people talk about estimation? And are we able to adapt to changing estimates in the event that something reveals itself further down the line? So Scrum does that by effectively time boxing the work window and saying, we're going to deliver this in this work window. And that makes us dependable. Kanban sort of takes the opposite effect of that, which is effectively by going, well, all the pieces of work are about the same size. Um, and some some of those are narrower windows than others, but they're about the same size. And therefore, using statistical modelling, we can predict when things will be delivered with some statistical confidence. Okay. So I always talk about these two distinct approaches to dependability. One is making sort of commitment-based dependability, i.e. we are going to do this amount of work, these items in this week. And the other one is the statistically, it is 85% likely that this item will be delivered in five days or less. And so one is sort of batch-based and the other one is item-based. So where item and batch are the same size. And those are the sort of two main approaches that I say. I mean, I'm obviously ignoring a whole bunch of agile approaches to work here. I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible, but that's dependability. So it's about quality in the way you think about the work, as well as the quality in the output of the work. Mm -hmm. So uh, product quality and process quality. Yeah. And that's why they have to be distinct elements, because if you conflate the two, you're going to get category errors when you're analysing them. Yeah. So you do need to think, does this impact dependability or does it uh, impact product quality? And that that's why we talk about those five problems. I should point out, I didn't come up with these five performance measures. I have shamelessly stolen them from far greater people than me who have gone before. Um, but they're a useful tool, plus sustainability, which really is now only has been added to that list recently. So, Yeah. Interesting. And it also harks back to some of the stuff that W. Edward Deeming was doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I still love quoting him because basically you start off with the production, you improve the quality, yeah. it reduces the cost. Yeah. Everything improves. Yeah. I mean, Deming was a man out of time in many ways. I mean, what he was saying was relevant 
40 years ago. I seem to recall that was when he was writing. 60s yeah. and 70s was when he started writing. I think he died in the 80s, but that is off the top of my head. So we sort of get some really interesting stuff towards the end where he becomes quite... Um, We're in a society where things are much less concrete than they used to be. There's a lot of virtual products. And really, he was talking to virtuality in terms of quality in the 1980s, way before really virtuality became concrete, he said, ironically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so things that he said, you know, put the customer at the heart of your operation. Like, that is still a revolutionary direction <laughs> yeah there's a lot of companies that still don't do that like 2023 how how are customers not important to you you need to think about value that's not really revolutionary if you want to appeal to your customers you need to have a product that they want there's a whole bunch of things that he said and did he was very very keen that you treat your employees well and give them a good return on the profits that they're generating I mean, I think topically that might be something that some chief executives want to listen to. I can quite imagine that in America during the 60s, that wasn't a popular subject, though. Yeah, I don't think think it's particularly a popular subject in 2023 in the UK or or America. I mean, you've you've still got... The 60s in America were interesting, of course, because you had the counterculture. You had the hippies who were like, peace, love, some decent substances. And like that... Many of them were trying to make a better world. Um, Perhaps they went about it in a way differently than we might do it today. But many of them were trying to create businesses which were friendly, which had small local impact, which was sustainable, which delivered products that people wanted locally. Um, You know, that sort of comes out of the hippie movement rather than sort of before that. It was all... More mass consumption being in a sort of more mechanical way they were sort of trying to return to a more people oriented way of doing things and that has had some limited effect on society i i'm just not sure it's had enough um yeah i'll throw my moral hat into the ring there and say i think people are probably more important than they're generally considered to be and probably deserving of not being called resources as well yeah we'll go with that one i agree entirely um you mentioned a, a word back there value yeah um that is something of paramount importance within an awful lot of this the whole concept of value stream mm-hmm. value chain and how value delivering value to someone that cares that you care about caring about the value exactly is the quality yeah. So like if we're going to talk about value, let's go back to David Hume. Imagine Scotland. <laughs> At the height I don't of- need to, I can see it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> David Hume turns up and one of the things he says is that many of the authors he was reading um get from an is to an ought with no gap between them. Okay. So you've got somebody saying the world will be overpopulated within 50 years if we, you know, don't control 
people's procreation or we don't come up with new ways of producing food right yeah that was certainly something that started to be said about that time but actually how do you get from based on what we know at the moment there won't be enough food for people in 50 years to therefore we ought to stop people reproducing there is clearly a set of values that bridge the statement between the is statement where we've got some lovely facts and the ought statement which is a nice prescription for what you should do in the future and it's those values which rarely go examined and which i like examining a lot because in order to get to your ought, you have to inject some values now those might be entirely uncontested entirely conventional values like you know i don't think people should starve i think we have a moral duty to take responsibility for this situation and therefore but very often people don't talk about those values and exactly the same conversations happen in product offices and in quality offices all the time here are the facts right um we know that our target customer fits this particular profile uh we know that these are the things that they want to buy therefore we ought to do this okay but how did you get there right if i'm buying a pen there are times when i want a pen that i can use five times and throw away because you know i just need it to write an envelope for somebody's birthday and i forgot to pick one up in the post office or whatever you know the, the normal i'm an idiot i need something quick and yeah throw away. petrol station job yeah exactly other times i need a pen that's reliable and for the sake of the recording i am holding up a pen that brian can see um i hope you can see that anyway, otherwise that was a terrible um and so i'm i i use a fairly high quality pen produced by a japanese company uh, as it happens what is the difference between those two sets of values and we know about market segments and we know that you end up with hyper penetrated market segments that become hyper competitive and just become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper we know that at the higher end you're going to have uh, a different range of competition based on different aspects of quality i mean the classic example would be between apple samsung and huawei in terms of what quality you're going to get out of a a mobile phone for example but i think very often people don't talk about what those actual values are and nor do they talk about how those values interact with the corporate values so the company i work for like many companies have a very clear stated set of values um and i'm not talking about my company particularly here actually but in general companies aren't always good at linking those values to the values of their customers and then to their products and you can find that the concepts of quality and product um, vision don't really align necessarily with the corporate values or in start or instead perhaps start to modify the corporate values in a new direction and you might well find that in say 10 years time that the products that you're building have modified the corporate values rather than the other way around. And it's fine because this is discourse, right? Whatever value statements you say are going to be subject to an argument between 
a group who hold them and a, pe- a group who want to walk to them. It's a, it's a dialectic in many ways. And so should the company be looking at the values of the market segment or should they be defining the business requirements according to the values held well yes is the answer to that right um your values at the point of creating a product are going to be a synthesis of the societal values at one level of the values of your particular uh, market niche at another level um if you are marketing to i mean generation z you have very different set of values to if you're marketing to the people who are around at the end of world war ii very different market sets so you're going to be having different conversations your corporate values might include a commitment to sustainability and if that's the case even if those aren't held by your other value influences you need to discuss that but you should be considering what those values are and you should be talking about them in ways that I'm not convinced happen much in organisations. That's a very broad brush, by the way. There clearly are organisations who talk about values a lot. There are also companies for whom the core value is profit and everything else is always going to be secondary to that. Um, So I, I used to have a board up here which had some of my research on it. And in the middle of it, it said superior economic performance. Because actually, these companies won't even bring themselves to use the word profit. They'll describe yeah. it superior economic performance because it sounds fancier. And even that reveals a value of types that's going on here. What language do we choose to describe things? But it's it's interesting that if you look at some of the, the big gurus of the efficiency movement, people like Deming, people like a lot of the, the Japanese guys who basically said, yeah, costs and and profit is important, but quality is the most efficient way of reducing that and achieving profit. And if you go back to Taylor, twice in one podcast, is this this some kind of omen? If you go back to Taylor, he was actively worried about his employees. And he was saying, if you look after your employees, you will do better as an organisation now. Taylor's idea of doing better by his employees wasn't always great. I think he got somebody to triple the amount of iron he was loading on a daily basis and paid him an extra like five cents or something, Um, which I would argue was not a great deal. (laughs) (laughs) But certainly when he published uh, his book, which was in the early 1900s, he was very, very keen on management actively engaging with employees to share those profits in an equitable way. Um, I I still argue that if you want your quality to improve, the route to that has to be in engaging in a fair, open and transparent way with your employees. Um, If you start to approach quality without your employees, you'll have misalignment you'll have misunderstanding, and you'll have arguably legitimately resentment. Those are the things that famously led to people in Holland throwing their wooden clogs, known as sabots, 
into the machinery. <laughs> so they were trying to increase quality and efficiency, but they were doing so at the expense of people, which, by the way, I would argue people who are talking about machine learning models and AI might do well to learn from. Definitely. But the AI conversation, I think, we'll save for another day because there's a lot of that. Well, I mean, my short take on that is it's not AI. Uh, let's wait until it is. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's not a very popular position at the moment. So. <laughs> Having delved into the some of the technical side of uh, a lot of the learning algorithms and how to implement them, uh, I'll be inclined to agree with you. And that the only thing that is of danger with AI is the people that implement it as opposed to the AI itself. I mean, and again, that's values, right? Exactly. There exactly. is a, a, a lacuna, fancy word for a gap. There is a lacuna in the way values are talked about in the context of, I mean, this has been said about technology broadly for decades. You know, oh, yeah. this is, you know I mean, it started with, um, well, yeah, it can go back a long time, hundreds of years. But the fact Probably started is, with the wheel. Yeah, I, I'm fairly certain that Ugg was most upset about his mate inventing the wheel. But the, uh, the the problem is we're now at the point where technology develops in such a rapid way that actually if you leave an opportunity out to talk about values, then the technology may have grown past the point where values can influence it very, very quickly. That's when it becomes dangerous. Isn't this one of the, the whole themes with like Oppenheimer? They'll like yeah. the technology overtaking... Uh, the the moral standpoint yeah i mean i think i haven't seen oppenheimer although obviously i'm aware of the story um i mean you could argue it's the same story as barbie though actually i haven't seen that either well see this is this is where you have failed <laughs> um Effectively, any opportunity you have where values are being overlooked for an opportunity to gain power and influence, you end up with a crisis. Now, I will I will concede that perhaps the crisis in Barbie is not quite the crisis it turns out to be in Oppenheimer. <laughs> um, but those crises both had significant cultural and societal impacts. And we we need to think about what technology means. I'm not actually big about talking about um, technology like this. By the way, I can do, but uh, I just find it very quickly becomes, yeah, we've said this before and we're just going to end up saying it again because people yeah. don't listen. There's a lot of conversations like that in technology yeah. generally anyway. Over yeah. the last 30 years, you hear the same things over and over again. But there from the, the values point of view that sort of segues quite nicely into something that I'll, i did want to ask you about which mm. is you, you're very vocal on diversity and inclusion mm. and how does that fit in with not just your values but the values of companies and why they should consider it yeah i mean i guess i've sort of hinted at that <laughs> i think um i think it was more than a hint <laughs> Yeah, was it more than a hint? I know, yeah, I, I will expand upon it further shortly. Um, if you're a leader in a company and you think that diversity and inclusion and people in general are not important, that will show up very quickly in your employment turnover 
It will turn out in the quality of your products and it will turn out in the way that the organization as a whole relates to society. So how would I decompose that a little bit? Well, first of all, employee tone, that's pretty, pretty obvious. Like if you are not creating an environment in which people feel welcome, they will walk away. Why might people not feel welcome? Um, I'm often reminded of a famous scene in Monty Python's Life of Brian, in which uh, Brian is um, standing at his mother's window and he says to the crowd, you are all different. And somebody in the crowd shouts, I'm not. And the same is true about humans. Like we are infinitely diverse. Um, some of those diversities matter more than others. You can play a guitar. I can't play a guitar. I haven't noticed any kind of musical-based bigotry in society. I mean, if you've, I'm not suggesting that like rock and classical don't have arguments about who is better. Clearly, that happens. But as far as I'm aware, there's no actual oppression happening, and like people don't generally die over it. Okay. Some of those differences are clearly more significant. Um, you might have noticed slightly more than 50% of the population are different to the other, say, 49% of the population. Like, we call them women. Um, they're different to us. They have characteristics that are unique to them. They have experiences that are unique to them. But as a result of the way society works, we as men, and collectively, and I'm including myself in this, have created a system where we are able to exercise power, often in indirect ways and unintentional ways, but the system is in place that women do not have the same opportunities as us. You, you possibly will remember that uh, slavery was a thing. Um, there seem to be enough politicians at the moment who seem to have forgotten it and or wanting to actively remove it from the historical record that it's worth reminding people that slavery had a massive traumatic and lasting effect on black people, uh, particularly in America. I mean, we stopped slavery earlier in the UK, but in fairness, we also started it and profited off it quite handsomely. So I'm not trying to uh, clear our slate there. As a result of that, uh, people who are black or from India or from uh, Asian countries are very often systematically affected by systems that benefit white people. Um, for example, if you're white, you're far more likely to get into university. Um, that's just a statistic. Um, am I suggesting that any individual in that university is being active? I mean, probably is somebody who is not a great person who is being a racist, but actually that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about systems that reinforce the norm. Uh, queer people. So that's the uh, lesbian, gay folks, the bisexual folks, the transgender folks, the intersex folks, the asexual folks, um, the aromantic folks. Obviously, there's a lot there. I, have I mentioned intersex? I feel like they're important. I should have mentioned them. I think you did, yes. Okay. Well, they get a double shout out. They're worth it. Um, so the LGBTQ plus um, people challenge society in ways that society is not keen on 
And so we fight against that. Now, what does that mean in terms of corporations? There's a whole bunch of other groups that I could mention here. And I, I want to mention disabled folks as well. Okay. So disabled folks often can't do the things that able-bodied folks can. Often that is as a result of the expectations of society and not of any inherent disability to the person, i.e. Uh, the disability comes along with a condition and the social conditions under which that is experienced. Um, so, for example, somebody in a wheelchair can very easily get into a building, but it does require somebody to have built a wheelchair and to have assumed that not everybody wanting to get into that building would be able to walk, for example. If your company puts up barriers which prevent the best and brightest from entering your workforce and from fully engaging and being able to do so with full dignity, you're going to lose those people. And the same is true at the social level, the same is true at the international level. The impact of that to your company is you might well lose out on clever people who could take your product to the next level. You might well miss out on hard workers who can ensure your processes can work effectively. You might well miss out on people who have got skills around empathy that you don't have, who can start to understand your customers in ways you wouldn't have thought of previously. There are many ways in which diversity is important to your organisation. I mean, look at me, I'm not going to be great on a heavy production line. I, I have the muscles of a chicken on a bad day, but I'm pretty good at sitting and thinking about problems and I'm pretty good at talking to people. Um, my diversity is what I bring to the organisation and that comes from my background. It comes from having a not great childhood. It comes from having a couple of disabilities myself. It comes from being gay. And I think I am in a position where I have gained some respect and I have some voice and I have some opportunity to provide voice and dignity to other people who are affected by these issues. And if I don't take that opportunity, then really I'm sort of siding with the people who don't want to have that opportunity. I'm siding with the system. Um, so again, I'm not actually pointing at individuals and saying they are an ist. What I'm saying is the system is built with a whole bunch of assumptions in mind, and I'm trying to undermine those assumptions. Cool. Very good. Um, it's probably a point where we need to start thinking about wrapping this up. So what question do you wish I'd asked you? Oh, you see, I'm not sure I have an answer to that one. Um, That's fine, because we can have another session and I can ask you lots of other ones. <laughs> because I enjoy the process of conversation. I see it as a sort of an unfolding, uh, which I like. I mean, obviously, one of the things that I'm very excited about at the moment is working on my PhD and what I'm going to be doing. It might be very nice if I could talk about that for a couple of minutes. Mm, please do. So um, this all has to go through ethics. So, you know, I still need to assess the values that 
that I'm going to be using here. Just don't worry. Um, so please don't email me tomorrow and say you want to be involved. Um, although if you can see problems with it, I would love to hear from you because that will save me a lot of trouble later. So the core of what I'm researching is narratives in organizational agility, which I think I mentioned earlier on. Uh, and what I'm particularly interested in is in the fact that those narratives are often not coherent within an organization which is to say if you go and talk to the people doing the work if you, i don't know if you gember i think that's what the fancy uh people yeah, go to the floor yeah if you go to the floor and talk to people the stories that you hear are fundamentally different to the narratives that are being told in the boardroom Okay, yep. so for example, we have the narrative of the agile transformation. Okay, whether we're using that language or not this week is neither here. There is still a narrative about an agile uh, transformation. But if you go and listen to sort of like the micro stories on the shop floor, as it were, you'll hear things like, "Well, they said we needed to like do it like this, and that's never going to work," or, "But they've told us three different ways of doing this, and they don't align at all." So what's going on? You can see there's these micro stories where people yes. are trying to make sense of what they have been told as part of this narrative, but it sort of resists the narrative as well. It um, It is trying to problem solve. I mean, there are people who would call this sense-making and that's effectively what's going on. But it's also these acts of micro resistance, which I find fascinating, you know, um, I'm sure you've been involved in teams where some of the members or some teams have been far more resistant than other teams. Even oh, yes. though, yeah. And it's almost certainly because of the development of micro stories within those teams. Like the, the team has adopted a particular story which reinterprets everything that comes out of the narrative. So that's what I'm interested in researching. So I'm going to be looking for three or four medium-sized organizations where i can go in and understand the narratives that are being told by managers slash uh agilists and listen to the micro stories uh on the shop floor as it were and then look at how those micro stories and narratives interact and then even compare those micro stories and narratives across organizations and then with the academic narratives that we've got about how change works and about how we manage operations and strategy. So that's what I'm interested in. So I will at some point be looking for three or four organisations that are keen to do that. I can definitely see there are going to be some challenges here. But if you can see anything particularly horrific, please uh, find me on LinkedIn and drop me a message. Um, and I am not talking to anybody about... Uh, opting in yet i will do that later on i'm not going to talk to you about it because until i've got an ethics approval it would be unethical for me to start to consider anybody in particular mm -hmm. this is going to be a really interesting thesis to read in fact i reckon there's probably a good book to be made out of this one well let's hope so because i've put a lot of years into this <laughs> i'd kind of like to get a return on it <laughs> <laughs> okay so talking about books what I've been asking my guests so far is to recommend three books, although at one point I think I had five. <laughs> that list has gotten shorter over time, clearly. Yeah. So um, 
what would I go with? So I would probably, so I'm going to reach to the shelf behind me. You get to watch the video of this, you'll see the books. If you don't get to watch the video, yeah. Uh, so I would go with Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rumel. Um, it's not a particularly modern book at the moment. 2011, it was published. It's surprisingly readable for a business book that's published by the Financial Times, if I'm honest with you. But he talks about strategy in a way which I haven't seen other people get. Okay, he's a fairly well um, recognized academic in the field, but this is a highly accessible book. Um, he talks about strategy as having a diagnosis, uh, a policy, and then a series of actions that are going to get you there. Yeah. And a lot of strategy that I have seen often doesn't have any of those three elements in there. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great book. Um, what else would I suggest? I really like, if you want to think about, if you want to think about mushrooms as being processes versus trees being solid objects, which is sort of a, a static dynamic way of thinking about things. Yeah. And I would recommend reading more about process metaphysics because who doesn't need metaphysics in their spare time? And this book, which is a little bit old now, uh, Process Metaphysics by Nicholas Rescher, is a good way to get into a different way of thinking. To put it another way, organisations are not physical objects. We have very much imagined them into being. They are effectively just a network of connections between people, along with some hardware that we use to do stuff. Um, in essence, therefore, anything that an organisation is, is a process. Mm -hmm. So yep. at some point, a person sat down and went, hmm, I would like to start this organisation to achieve these goals. That's sort of the birth of the organisation. That has then developed over a period of time, and it's become whatever that organisation is now. Of course, if you have a birth and a mid-process, that implies that that organisation will also eventually die as all processes do. And I think if you watch Be More Mushroom, you will have seen that I started that with the story of the universe. So it starts with the Big Bang, which is the ultimate process of this universe. <laughs> um, and everything is just a sub-process of the Big Bang. Uh, if only we could model it, life would be a lot simpler. I um, need a lot of processing for that one. <laughs> yeah. Do I have a third one at the moment? I'm not, not. I'm not a hundred percent convinced. I do. But... I can see a lot of interesting books on there, like the Phoenix Project and Emotional the... Intelligence. And... Yeah, but you see, I'm going to go with Be More Pirate. Oh, I like that. So, Be More Pirate is. I don't agree with all of Be More Pirate. Right, I think they slightly over romanticise piracy in general. <laughs> um... That's, that was understatement of the decade for people who didn't pick up on that. I think um, the ways in which piracy is used as a metaphor, and it don't always work out, but actually it's that um, calling to be a voice, to stand out, to stand against things, to work collectively for things that I think really carries that as a book that is inspiring particularly for people who are 
setting out on leadership roles or management roles for the first time if you don't want to be the navy captain who shouts at people to get things done have a read of this and consider a different way of achieving your goals because ultimately it's going to value your people more it's going to add more quality yeah it might not uh, give you all the profits in the universe but i'm not convinced that's the only metric of success in life I think that's a wonderful note to end this conversation on. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Brian. It's been wonderful. So thank you to David and thank you for listening. Check out the show notes for links to everything referred to in this show. And join us next time when we'll have more quality conversations about quality.